So, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. We will discuss in general and in detail this evening a little bit of Srila Jiva Goswami's Bhagavat Sandarbha. Srila Jiva Goswami is a, a sadhu, a follower of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the youngest of the six Goswamis who are considered Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's direct disciples. And he's in, in, in Indian circles considered, considered the greatest logician who ever lived in India. So in India they would say that uh, Jiva Goswami had the, 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 most, uh, the most profound logical mind available in his day. We're studying a, a set of books of his called the Satsandarbhas, meaning six Sandarbhas, dealing with the <coughs> nature of God. And he starts out this whole series of books by basically posing uh, a theistic possibility. Wouldn't it be nice if we could come in contact with the supreme truth and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was a proper presentation of spiritual reality. So that's his premise. Wouldn't it be nice if we could actually have that much confidence in a theistic presentation that it was beyond any shadow of a doubt an accurate representation of the truth of the reality of our existence. So that's his, his basic premise to his readers, to his audience, that if you're looking for truth, supreme truth, it can be found, it can be had but you need to look in the right place. And then it goes through where is the right place to look for truth. And he presents a few different possibilities. Uh, I'll only discuss three this evening in, in general so that we can get to a little discussion of the, the subject at hand. Um, Can we look to our senses as a viable media for conveying truth about our existence? Would be nice. We all have senses, so we'd all have an equal opportunity. The senses are an equal opportunity provider for our <laughs> for our inspection, our empiric inspection of the world around us. But wait a minute. Our senses, there's a couple problems if I want to depend on an evidence to support a theistic presentation and I rely on the senses. It seems that in the world of man, 
and in the world of living entities, what's presented by the senses of one person are not equivalent to the senses of another person. Where you could be in this room and feeling, I wish they'd turn the air conditioning up, it's really hot in here. Somebody else sitting right beside you could be chilly. Same senses, but different, different perceptions. So we have our knowledge-acquiring senses. We have our ears, we have our eyes, we have our nose. We have our sense of touch. We have our t- sense of taste. So we have five senses that are presenting information to the mind, which is like the regulating sense. And from those, we could ascertain knowledge. But if I take these off, my perception of what's out there is it loses its validity to some extent. Hopefully not, but in later years, if I take this out, I may not be able to hear at all. So the senses are only up good up to a point, and they're not perfect. I cannot hear as acutely as the dogs across the street. They can hear somebody coming down the road, they start barking, and I don't even know the car's on the road. So, can we really rely on empiric observation to provide to us ultimate truth? And the great sages and saints say, it's probably not the best indicator of what's reality because the indicator is not consistent across the board of human experience. People will experience things differently in the world of man. And what to speak of the world of living entities. I mean, the dog can smell better than us, the dog can hear better than us, the eagle in the sky can see better than us. Or you could say, well, we have a mind and, you know, our mind is, can, we can make up for all our shortcomings sensually. Well, that's been going on as far as we can look back in history. But if the problem is with that mindful approach to acquiring knowledge, it always seems to be replaced by a better formula. We have Einstein, considered one of the greatest scientific minds of his day, coming up with this equation, uh, E equals MC squared, and all of a sudden we're able to, to use that to create a sun, and worse. But today, his theory when critically looked at by the thinkers of today, and remember, he was only 50, 60 years ago. They say his equation doesn't stand up in the, when the way 
that you can look at the nature of matter and it's changing. So they have these new quarks, and they have these new ways of looking scientifically at things and we call that, uh, uh, what is it, quantum mechanics, something like quantum physics and it's it basically throws everything that Einstein had arrived at out the window so to a certain extent. So we can, our senses are not quite there and our mind is always coming up with new and better ideas of what reality is. Einstein said reality's like this and now the scientists are saying, well, no, it's not quite like that. And really, when you look, now they're actually coming to a point where they recognize the fact that you cannot predict the physical reality and what's going to happen in it. I don't know the science, but it's, it's interesting for those people who, who are looking. This quantum physics is, is, is amazing. What to speak of the realm of consciousness, quant- conscious awareness and the different, the different way that humanity looks at conscious awareness, awareness than it did just 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So how good are the senses in the mind? If we want to have absolute truth regarding the nature of our being, can we really depend on observing the world around us with faulty senses and a flickering mind that's always looking to improve its conclusions regarding the reality that we live in. So Jiva Goswami says, yeah, no, let's not rely, let's not put our faith there. I will make a long story short. There's also other ways of having knowledge. We can infer one thing from another. If we see smoke on the other side of a mountain, we can infer that there's a fire over there. We could be wrong. But it's probably a pretty good guess. But a guess is not reliable enough to know the nature of our spiritual being. And the Jiva wants to know, Jiva Goswami wants to know, what is the nature of our spiritual reality? After he presents all of his arguments in regards to all the different ways or pramanas, evidence, the name Sanskrit word praman means evidence that humanity could use to arrive at a conclusion. After he presents them all and defeats them all, he said, but there's one ultimate reality that we can rely on. And that's the scriptures, the, the, the sound vibration coming from the Lord himself. And then he gives various evidences from the scriptures which fall outside the realm of the normal course of acceptance, but are reality. Take, for example, the cow. In, in Indian society, we, they worship the cow. It's, it's a very, very special, sacred animal. Now, generally, our perception in life is the stool of every animal is contaminated. But the scriptures say the stool of the cow is sacred and medicinal. 
and human and modern science bears out that fact that actually it has medicinal effects it's a cleanser it's not a not a soiler like all other stools are so he gives a couple evidences to that effect regarding the veda and then he says but the veda is a huge mass of of spiritual knowledge and material knowledge it covers all aspects of material life how to raise a family how to how to situate a home so it's in alignment how to how to go to war Don Veda uh, Aruveda, how to repair the body, keep the body healthy. Uh, Kama Sutra, how to enjoy the body to the ultimate through sexual experience. So all these different areas of knowledge are contained in the Veda. But he says there's one section of the Veda that only deals with pure spirituality. And that is one Puranic text called the Srimad Bhagavatam. So these Sandarbhas, these six Sandarbhas are dealing with understanding God through the Bhagavatam, through this one spiritual text. Because this text, he has arrived at the conclusion through study of all the Vedas that all the Vedas point to this text as the topmost presentation of the essence of spirituality. We're talking about the essence, the cream of the cream, the spotless Purana. There's not a tinge of material motivation in this particular spiritual text. So imagine in a culture like India, where they have so many gurus, so many different aspects of spiritual practice that he's able to put forward this conclusion and defend it against all comers logically. So that's what this Sundarva presentation is. It is a masterful pramana evidence as to the validity of the Srimad Bhagavatam's conclusions regarding spirituality. Spirituality as to the nature of truth. The first Sandarbha is called Tattva Sandarbha. Tattva means truth. Spirituality as it relates to Bhagavan, the Supreme Lord. Spirituality, that's the second Sandarbha, the Bhagavat Sandarbha. Spirituality as it relates to the Supreme the Supreme Lord as present throughout his creation. Paramatma Sandarbha, the third Sandarbha. So these three Sandarbhas deal with Sambandha Gyan, the interrelationship between the world of man and the world of the Supreme. What is those interrelationships? And that basically, it's a 
it's a handbook as to who is God, where is God, and what's what is the nature of his being and what is the nature of his being in relationship to our being. So that's the first three Sandarbas. No, four. There's one more. The Krishna Sandarbha, which is what's the Supreme Lord in his most intimate aspect? In other words, God being God on his own terms where it's not the duty of maintaining material existence or the existence of his manifestations. So Tattva Sandarbha on the nature of truth Bhagavat Sandarbha, Paramatma Sandarbha, and Krishna Sandarbha. So four Sandarbhas dealing with the inner relationship between God, his creation, and all of his expansions, ourselves. Then he presents another Sandarbha called the Bhakti Sandarbha. How can we bridge the gap between ourselves and God? And he, then he presents a final Sandarbha called the Preeti Sandarbha. And how, what's the ultimate, where's it all end? If I can bridge the gap, what waits, what lies ahead for me? And that's, that's love, Preeti, pure love for the Supreme Pure from the pure self not the self covered over by so many desires that would stand between myself and a totally a total offering free of self motivation so that gives you some idea of what we're studying here. Uh, I've been speaking on the Sandarbhas now for two years. We're close to a hundred lectures. Uh, and we're only on the second, the middle of the second Sandarbha. So if I'm lucky enough to be able to complete it, I'm still waiting for the author to, not the author, but the compiler. Uh, but it'll take me a while just to catch up to where he is. So we're in the middle of the Bhagavat Sandarbha and we're discussing the nature of God. What's he like? And Jiva Goswami's been giving us all kinds of angles of vision about what God's like and, and how we can tell the difference between God and ourselves and what is really spiritual and what is, uh, you know, pseudo-spiritual and... It's quite an interesting study. So we're on an Anucheda. Uh, it's a Sanskrit word meaning section of the Bhagavat Sandarbha. Each section of his Sandarbhas, his presentations on theistic knowledge, um, is broken up into Anuchedas where a particular spiritual idea is presented logically and supported by that 
supreme scripture that he refers to, the Bhagavat Purana, Srimad Bhagavatam, and he basically he walks through that presentation and brings us into a more profound understanding of that spiritual truth that he's presenting. So we've been studying this 58th Anacheda a little bit. And a summary of the Anacheda would be Krishna's body is the complete form of Bhagavan. And he really wants to he really wants to bring the point home to us that what we experience as a bodily existence, our bodily existence is not the same as the body bodily existence that the Supreme Lord experiences. Now we only have one experience of bodies, and those are the bodies that we perceive with our senses, right? We 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 have our empiric inspection and and we, we're not used to God's body. We can't it's hard for us to perceive. If we can't if we can't see if we can't perceive with our senses a body, then how can how can we relate to it? That's it's a pretty good pro- question to be asked. So um, somebody could dispute being even that the scriptures are talking of God's body as transcendental, not like our body. And they could, they could offer an argument. So we went over this argument in the last discussion. Krishna's body is material. Someone could propose that. Well, why is it material? Because you can see it. So you can see the Lord's body. If somebody can see the Lord's body, it must be material because all visible objects are material like a table. So anything that we can see with our senses is material. So if somebody says they can see the Lord, then he must have a body like everybody else's. And Practically speaking, in the scriptures, people talk of seeing God. Brahma, the Kumars, Kardama Muni, these are all sages in the tradition and in the literature we're discussing, Srimad Bhagavatam, but also in, you know, people, people walked and talked with Lord Jesus. Now, Lord Jesus is, is a manifestation of the Supreme Lord. He has a spiritual body. If you don't have a spiritual body, you don't walk out of a cave that has a boulder in front of it. It doesn't happen. So he must have a spiritual body also. So we can apply it to other traditions, this concept that Jiva's arguing here. Hence Krishna body. Jiva says, Srila Jiva Goswami says that this inference is fraught with the defect of stultified or faulty logic. Conclusions reached. And he basically uses the scripture to say, no, the Lord's body is transcendental. It's spiritual. So that's what we've been discussing this Anucheta. And 
he's using a prayer by Brahma. Brahma is an engineer of material construction. Just like you're a contractor and you, you tell this person to do that and this person to do that and you end up with a building. You hire this person. Brahma's got that job in relationship to the material universe. So if you have deep enough appreciation for what you see in in nature, then you have to you have to kind of arrive at the conclusion that there's somebody behind it. It didn't just happen by chance. So we would ar argue with those that would say material nature just came about from a bang. There's too much perfection in a snowflake for it to just happen by chance. What to speak of the birth of a child and a hundred million, trillion, quadrillion different natural things that we observe that are we can't even explain how it happens. We don't even know. We don't even know how our body digests food. We don't personally involve ourselves in it, but guess what? We're living in an energy machine that's taking food and, and churning it into energy every moment of our lives. We don't know how our, our lungs are pulling in the air that's freely provided to us and sustaining our existence. So Jiva's going to use the prayers of the creator of the universe as an evidence to show, because the creator of the universe actually had a discourse with the Supreme Lord according to our scriptural understanding. So we're going to walk through a couple of these points. And not. Uh, we went over the truth declaration. Now we're going to talk about six transformations that happen in our body that Brahma, that creator of the universe, says can't be applied to the Supreme Lord as evidenced by his revelation. And I'm sure we could all agree that if we actually saw the Lord before us, it would be a revelation. Something above and beyond sensual experience that we're used to. It would be better than any concert. It would be more profound than any lecture. It would be more mystical than any travel to the most exotic place on the face of the earth. It would be quite an experience. So Brahma, the creator, had such an experience and actually saw the Lord before him. And by seeing that revelation, the Lord before him, a prayer came. And in that prayer, he pointed out certain characteristics of the form that he was perceiving. It was a revelation. And he, in that revelation, certain spiritual truths were made apparent to him. <laughs> So I'll just read the verse that Brahma composed when he had this revelation. Ekastvamatma purusha purana satya swayam jyotir ananta ajya 
nityosaro jashra sukho niranjana purnad vayo mukta upadito mrita. Brahma says, you are this one self. You are that one supreme self. The primeval supreme lord. No one's older than you are. You are primeval. When it comes to the oldest, that's God. The absolute truth. Self-effulgent, endless, and beginningless. No one can find when you came into existence. No one will be able to say when you end your existence. Because you're eternal. You are eternal and imperishable, full of unobstructed joy, pure, perfect, and complete. Being non-dual and free from all limiting adjuncts, you are immortal. So this is Brahma's conclusion after he experienced the form of the Lord. This prayer naturally came, and he was, it was a revelation to him. Using this prayer, Srila Jiva Goswami, the author of the Sundarbhas, is going to refute the six changes that are inherent in every material body. Because that was the original premise put forth. If, I, if someone sees God like Brahma, he has to have a material body. One does not perceive anything that doesn't have materiality. So let's talk about those six transformations that happen in our bodies that don't apply to the Lord. So the first transformation is birth. So without birth, none of us would be here. We all came here by birth. I've not come across anybody and I don't think anybody's presented themselves in human society that didn't take birth in human society from a womb. So, in the prayer, Brahma referred to the Lord as Ajya. I'm sorry, the body's Ajya existing prior to cause and effect. So the Lord's body exists prior to cause and effect. Our bodies come about because of they're a byproduct of some cause. Second transformation. Subsistence. Our body only makes it from day to day by subsistence on things external to it. If you don't feed it, if you don't water it, if you don't give it air, it's not going to make it to the next day. You're not going to live from today to tomorrow without sustaining your body on by food, water, air. It's just not going to happen. But Brahma says the Lord's form does not require any of these things. 
You are eternal, meaning that his form exists through all time and not just for a limited duration. Third transformation. The third transformation from us is growth. Ready. But in Brahma's prayer, the Lord's referred to again as Ajashra Sukha, unobstructed joy. Which means that the Lord's body is eternally blissful. And this excludes also the fourth transformation, parinama or mutation. So both these things, growth and transformation, Brahma did not perceive those in the form of the Supreme Lord. Neither of those. And instead of that, he perceived an entity who was full of in, full and complete and fully sustained himself in his own joyfulness. So the other transformations I have them here in one simple place. Produce byproducts, birth, subsistence, growth. Producing byproducts, diminution. What goes up must come down. We grow, we have a great life, and then guess what? It starts to get gray and old and wrinkled and guess where it ends it ends in death so Brahma's prayers if we study them closely we'll find that he points out that the transformations that are forced upon us by the environment that we inhabit are not cannot be attributed to the form of the supreme lord there's no one can point out a time when he came into birth. No, there's no changes in his body. There's no growth. There's no necessity of anything outside of himself for his assistance. And there's no byproduct on the material. He has no byproducts. He's complete in himself. Everything is him. If you want to look at it that way, there's not, nothing separate from him so how could there be a byproduct? It's all contained in his form. There's no diminution. He doesn't dwindle away like we do. And he never blows away like our ashes from the funeral pile. And he never gets diseased. Are you sure? No. No, he doesn't have a material body like we do, so there's no disease. So in this way, 
you can have some little insight into the the logical mind of one of the followers of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We can study these Sandarbhas for years and be, and be introduced to newer and newer revelations regarding the nature of our being and the nature of the Supreme Lord's being. So if you are so inclined, I invite you to study the Sandarbhas of Jiva. I'll stop there for this evening. Are there any questions? I have a question. Yes. Let me preface my question with the fact that my knowledge of Krishna consciousness has only been through what we're trying to understand with Will's Quest. Uh-huh. Um, having grown up in a Christian environment that, that just grew up that way, and as I've sought spirituality throughout my life in, in different forms, only because the Baptist and the Anglican spirituality that I was forced upon something. Mm-hmm. One of the problems I had in going to Europe were, were the ornate cathedrals and my love for history and seeing how what happened with the popes and the kings and how the poor people were outside. Uh, and, and all this money was spent in, in the medieval ages for these tremendous cathedrals which are gorgeous and beautiful, which, but they were, they were uh, built for God. Mm-hmm. And as I'm trying to understand, and this may be a question I should ask you later, not in this environment, but I see the deities and they, they are ornate, they're magnificent, they're decorated, they have gold, they have all these things. And I've always thought that the Krishna consciousness was more, less, more minimalistic, less material, mm-hmm. more earthly, more ethereal and spiritual. Mm-hmm. What, tell me, I mean, I guess just the basic premise of the deities as to why they are as ornate, is that just tradition? It's tradition, it's, uh, we give the best that we can to the deity according to our means, but we would not, we wouldn't, you know, take from the poor to give to God, he already owns everything. So it's, it's not, it's not in that vein that one you know, builds a temple for God. The temple for God is a temple for man. Uh, our tradition, if you really want to look at the roots of our tradition, is more grounded in spiritual revelation coming from one saint to another. But those saints, in order to to give us an entrance point, because profound spirituality means giving up all that is material, there has to be a means, a gradual means by which the common man can begin to have a connection with the Supreme. The common man cannot go off to the forest and sit in meditation and contemplate the Lord or chant his names continually 24 hours a day. You know, there's the deep meditations that are there by the profound spiritualists, no matter what their traditions, there, there's, it's a very solitary practice. Wouldn't you agree with that? So really, it's the outreach to humanity. Some traditions do that outreach better than others. 
And I would agree with you. In fact, in our tradition, one of our stalwarts, only two generations back, the spiritual master, my spiritual grandfather, he said, the hell with this temple worship. Rip down the temple, sell the marble, and print books. Because printing books is much more important in modern society than in having a temple. So, at the roots, if you look even currently in our tradition, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, my great-grandfather spiritually, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, um, they both spoke pretty heavily against formalized religion. Because the second we formalize it, we get into sectarian consciousness. It's just naturally. It's my God versus your God. You know, but there's only one God. But when mankind sets up a structure for worship, it generally ends badly. That's the truth. I mean, look at, look at, look at what happened to the followers of Lord Jesus Christ through the ages more atrocities, or many atrocities, have been uh, perpetuated on other human beings based on, and they're not alone, it's not just that tradition, it's all traditions, even the Hindu tradition, I mean, they have wars, you know, in every religious tradition, there's wars because of sectarianism, we're not into sectarianism, we'll rip down the temple, we'll take the gold off the deity if we can be, if we can publish a book that will really be ta- accepted and, and studied in humanity and people can, can, rise, can rise to the occasion of truly pursuing spiritual life. But generally, in the world of man, people like a temple. People like to go to the temple. I mean, if we didn't, have, if we didn't come together like this, we couldn't, we couldn't have this discussion. And hopefully all of us can walk away, me the most, from, from, from presenting the philosophy because there's people that want to hear it. So we need to get together, but we don't walk out of here and say we're, we're the greatest spiritualists. You know, and our temple's the biggest, and our te- we have the most, you know. So I get where you're coming from, and believe me, in our tradition, there's a lot of our, you know, there's a lot to be said for what the point you're making. And we would agree with it. Can't you, you have to do it enough to get people in the door so they listen to the message, but if you do it too much, then it becomes a problem. Does that answer your question? Well, I, I don't think my question could ever be answered by any, you know, that, and, and this quest for spirituality and why we do the things we do and, and the different ways we do. Yeah, whatever works for you. The point is we need to turn our consciousness towards the Supreme. We'll be better for it, and ultimately it will diminish our suffering in the world of man, and it'll offer us an opportunity to to enter into the world of God. So whatever does that, let's go for that. Right, yeah. I'll stop there. I'll thank you very much for your association.